0: Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We are going to be um, talking today through something that I think is really it's important and it's difficult. Difficult in a few different ways. Difficult number one because we're supposed to do it in a short amount of time. Which, for guys today, it's going to be a little bit, a little bit longer. Um, but secondly, we're talking about something that is intuitive. It's something that we take for granted. It's kind of like the world within we, which is which within in. And so, what we're talking today is the spirit of the age, um, contrasted to the life in the spirit. So, if you do have your phones, if you have things you want to write with, hopefully um, the goal of this is for it to actually enhance your formation into Jesus. It's not just to receive a bunch of information that overwhelms you, but it's actually to help strengthen the disruptive discipleship that we're called to as followers of Christ. So I'm going to start off with our teaching text, and then we're going, to, we're going to begin. Sound good? Everybody good? All right, guys. Look, there's a lot of quotes in here, a lot of graphs. We're going to do it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. There we go, Kai. Okay. Teaching text. Exodus 7. through the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also known, uh, also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down their staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This is the word of the Lord. Blaise Pascal once said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both. This is the motive of every action of every man. So like I said, we're in the midst of a Holy Spirit series. And so you might be saying, what does it talk about? the spirit of the age, and predominantly with secularism, what does that have to do with Holy Spirit? Well, it has to do with it in this way. Most of what we've spent our time with has been uh, surrounded around the, the gifts. So we talked about the manifestation gifts for the last two weeks, like tongues, prophecy, and healing, and we spent a majority of our time on those because for the, for the most part, we theologically, even though maybe we come back from different faith traditions, there's the hurdle that we have to get over is just theological. There is a deeper and perhaps greater hurdle that resists or maybe puts a wall up for us as modern people, people that are living in the modern age, that really, it, it kind of causes a a, a lens that we look at spirituality in that is far different from what the first century church, the early Christians would have thought. And so that hurdle is cultural. So today we're spending time around kind of trying to deconstruct some of the lenses in which we look at our spirituality, we look at the Holy Spirit, the life lived by the Spirit, to try to cause within us a little bit of a suspicion towards the narratives of, that the culture give us and perhaps even like cause a deeper sense of uh, hesitation towards like, you know, there, there's, this, there's this, this script of what the flourishing life looks like and how to gain it that the world will tell you. And we want to have a hesitation towards that and say, okay, I think there's actually something else that's more meaningful and lasting. So here we go. For most of human history, happiness or the ultimate good was described in natural, earthly forms of well-being. So take for example, wealth, health, Fertility and longevity. Those were really like the anchor points that people said, okay, I have a good life. I'm making a lot of money, you know, crops aren't doing too bad. i got a ton of kids going on. Like life is pretty great. This was called um, the Axial Age. Okay, this is a term coined by a philosopher by the name of Carl Jaspers. And he said that there was this age in which humans up until about 500 BCE kind of lived and viewed life in. And this was called the pre-axial age. Okay, within the pre-axial age, there was a shared origin. There was a shared idea of how the flourishing life was achieved. Like I said, it was through these earthly means. There then came an influx of all of the intellectual, philosophical, and religious ideas of the age. So you think about like, thank you. You think about um, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, They start coming onto the scene. Uh, You start having Taoism and Confucianism in the East. You have the the Hebrew prophets coming into the imagination of society. And you begin to have this shift from earthly um, places of finding meaning to transcendence. So all of these religions and philosophies began to say the flourishing life is achieved the closer that the human or the community gets to the transcendent. So no longer was it agricultural, was it economic? It was all about the divine. Jurgen Habermas said that that there became there began this rupture in that shared origin um, that that we all held at that time. Miroslav Wolf, who is one of the prominent uh, Protestant theologians of our time, he's the head of the divinity at Yale University. He uh, He had this to say, at the heart of the great world religions lies an answer to the question of the true life, the good life, and the genuine flourishing life. Religions were, and they continue to be, the most compelling visions of the good life, but they're not the only sources of those visions. Because at the heart of philosophy is the idea to uh, answer the question of how to reach this ultimate good. So we all know Aristotle, and um, he had this term for what this flourishing life was, and this was called edamonia. And edamonia is a little bit different from what we would consider happiness, but, but it was within this idea of like how to reach flourishment, um, but where we look at happiness as being kind of like a means to an end, like we should live in a way where we're happy and then we reach something else. Aristotle thought about this flourishment and edemonia being the ultimate thing that we should see. So you should see a little graph here uh, with a little pyramid here. Um, And yeah, what Aristotle would be saying was, okay, the end goal of all humanity is edemonia. It is the top, the pinnacle aspect of life. What we pertain and what we say the state of feeling happy or content, that is the means towards whatever end we're trying to reach. As Christians, we'd say that edmonia is communion with God. That's, That's the ultimate end goal of humanity, be reunited in the intention that the garden was created in. So you have all of these different religions and philosophies that have a vision of what the flourishing life looked like. And even though they differed in perhaps the way to achieving that, they did share three commonalities. So Wolf and Matthew Crossman, who's another Yale professor and scholar, they, they kind of dissected all of these major religions and philosophies, and they found that there was like a tripartite kind of structure that the flourishing life was built off of. And these were... A life led well, life going well, and life feeling as it should. Wolfen Crossman write, Life going well refers to circumstantial dimensions of the flourishing life, to the desirable circumstances of life, be they natural, like fertile, uh, uncontaminated land, social, like a just political order or a good reputation, or personal, like health and longevity. Life led well refers to the agentile dimensions of the flourishing life, to the good conduct of life, from right thoughts of the heart to right acts to right habits and virtues. Life feeling as it should is about the effective dimensions of the flourishing life, about states of happiness, contentment, joy, and empathy. So we're kind of obsessed with getting a good life. We're kind of obsessed with finding this ultimate good, and I think it's probably perhaps more so than any other time in human history, we have more agency and more ability to actually reach that life, but we kind of sense this deep disconnect where we're probably further away from contentment than people that came before us in human history. And that causes within us this internal angst. So how did we as a culture trend towards a shared cultural belief that flourishing and happiness can be found without God or found without the spirit? So there's one philosopher that we're going to be referring to a ton in this talk. His name is Charles Taylor. Uh, He was a Canadian philosopher, and he has a 900-page book, if you really want to get into his work, called A Secular Age. Or you can read the 200-page synopsis by by another crazy smart guy, J.K. Smith, called How Not to Be Secular. Those are two great resources. One will take a lot longer than the other. Um, But Charles Taylor has a concept called mimesis and poesis. It's really helpful for us as we're continuing our analysis of how did we get here? It's a simple idea, but a mimetic view, moasis, it regards a world as having a given order and a given meaning, and thus humans seeing, uh, seeing things as required to discover that meaning and conforming themselves to it. That's the important part, conforming themselves to the things that they find in this world that bring meaning. A poesis view sees the world as raw materials of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So on one end, moesis, we are conforming ourselves to some kind of external meaning. Poesis, that meaning conforms around us and our desires. It's a very helpful, very important structure as we continue our analysis today. The world that was known before the 1500s, so this axial age that we referred to earlier, lived in a mimetic view. All of meaning was found outside of the individual. But then once you started to get into uh, the medieval era, ending around like 1450 AD, um, you, you began to see after, after this so many different aspects of human society that started to come in and change from what Charles Taylor called an enchanted world into a disenchanted world. So an enchanted world, he said, was a mimetic view. This was a a world where everything was filled with meaning, that, that reality, morality, and purpose was found all outside of the human, and it pointed toward the god or the gods of whatever religion people believed in. Religion was everywhere. The spirit world and the material world was porous. It means it just like flowed in and out of one another. Everything was sacred. Rod Dreher, in his book, the um, uh, The... Um, Oh my gosh, the, the, the Benedict option, I'm forgetting, own books here. The power of sacred places and relics of saints had such potency to the medievals because God wasn't present in a vague spiritual sense, like a butler watching silently over a manor house. The specific sense in which he was present was a mystery, and the source of speculation, even contention, but that he was fully present was not disputed. So however imperfect the early Christians were, the medieval Christians were in this enchanted world, they had a shared vision of integration. This allowed for like conceptual harmony within a chaotic reality. So the world's going crazy, stuff that is really, we shouldn't be proud of as Christians in our, in our history, but they had a shared and a, and a harmonious conceptual life in the midst of that reality but then that began to shift like i mentioned earlier it began to shift by these major moments in human history from an enchanted world to a disenchanted world some of these major movements in human society began with the protestant reformation in the 16th century the enlightenment in the 18th the industrial revolution in the 19th and the sexual revolution in the 20th century these shifts brought about this from this enchanted world and this to our current cultural moment. It moved frameworks that were agreed upon, mostly pertaining to the divine, and began to make them subjective and individual. Hertmut Rosa writes, if a kid asks what to do with his or her life, teachers, friends, and family will sure to offer their advice, but they will almost inevitably rush to add, just find out for yourself. Listen to your heart. Come to know your talents and your yearnings. Thus, the good life has become the most intimately private matter. The gist of the advice is simple. Follow your dreams. We believe that we ought to decide for ourselves how to live. More, we're convinced that the vision of life that is good for us is encoded in our particular character as individuals an inviolable criterion of the good life is that it's authentically ours. Our choice about the matter is worthy of respect just because it is ours and resonates with who we perceive ourselves to be. So as a a result of these shifts, we're looking outside of ourselves for meaning and order and truth rather than looking for those, uh, we, we, we begin to look at those inside ourselves rather than looking outside of ourselves. Um, so in order to kind of like illustrate this a little bit more in another area of culture, uh, I wanna talk about the art world. Who's like a, a fan of like the, like, who loves going to like museums and seeing art? That's, that's awesome, great. Great. Well, there you you might be um, familiar then with the Armory Show. Is the Armory Show ring a bell to anyone? Armory Show, 1913. Some say that this is probably one of the most, if not the most, um, important moments in in a lot of like cultural settings, but particularly as it pertains to the arts holistically. So the art show was held in in New York in 1913. Um, This was the birthplace of the modern art movement. So you had artists that blew up on the scene in America, such as like Van Gogh, Gauguin, Cézanne, Picasso, Matisse. uh, But most uh, notably probably um, was Marcel Ducamp, which Marcel Ducamp, every Christian should know about Marcel Ducamp. Marcel Ducamp was probably like the poster child of like destructionism. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's an image that's coming up here. Um, these are two of Marcel Ducamp's most famous pieces. Um, one is Nude descending a stairway. And the thing that made it, that's the, the thing that made this so controversial was Marcel uh, Ducamp's entire, his, his prerogative and his hope for every person that looked at it was that they would end up feeling dirty. Because if you look at it, there's nothing about it that says nudity. There's nothing that looks inappropriate. There's nothing that, I mean, it's really actually hard to actually figure out what he's painting. But his intention was ultimately that the human psyche would go crazy, feeling dirty, searching for something that was there. So he begins to take what are the boundaries of truth and he begins to mold them into what he is subjectively perceiving and his intention. But maybe even more explicit than descending a stairway is the image on the right which he, uh, which he called fountains. And he, in 1917 to camp, he, he um, sent this to uh, the institution of artists um, to be put into their exhibit and it was actually initially rejected uh, because the board thought that this is an art and his response was it's art because I say it's art. And so this began to have shockwaves. This is a ready-bought urinal. This is not something that he created, he got it, and wrote R.H. Moot on it, and then sent it in and said, this is art. And so this begins to shift and begins to even um, make war against what the art world considered was art up until that time. And so this is exactly what has been happening for hundreds of years intellectually. What happened in the art world in 1913 and in the, in the early, in the early uh, 1900s has been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years through different th- thinkers and writings that now we're living in a world where many of them, their thoughts are now manifested. Um, so there are a few writers that I think that are incredibly important for us as we begin to like look at this and think through. And maybe some of us haven't read their work, but we're definitely living a life that has their work infused in almost all of it. So some of these writers, we have René Descartes, we have Voltaire, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Karl Marx, Nietzsche, um, Freud, and Michel Foucault. Um, So just like a, a really little like just Short like explanation on a few of these guys. Um, Rene Descartes. He's known by most to be the father of postmodernism. He had that famous line, "I think, therefore I am." Uh, Voltaire. He introduced religious tolerance, which is such a fascinating concept. What kind of effects religious tolerance has on your worldview of religion? Rousseau believed that the individual was intrinsic good, and society corrupted the individual. Karl Marx, most of us know about Marx and, and Nietzsche. Um, there's, a, there's a guy, another book that I would highly recommend everyone should read is called Strange to the World by Karl Truman. Um, it's an incredible piece. It's, it's 200 pages, super short. You can read it in like two days, but it's so helpful in reading and dissecting everything that these thinkers have thought through. Karl Truman on uh, Marx and Nietzsche says, we all live in a world where many of their basic ideas are now our cultural intuitions. Marx's own, you know, economic ideas, overthrowing the bourgeoisie, um, Nietzsche, um, he was a nihilist, and uh, his famous quote is, God is dead, which is actually not the fullness of his quote. His quote is actually a lament. It's not a rejoice. So, you can just read the whole quote there um, Sigmund Freud um thought that you know thought that all of our all of our desires that 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 we were living life humans were living through this um through through this unconsciousness, and that that unconsciousness was was driven by sexual by by sexual urges, and most of his stuff has been um yeah most of his theories have been disproved, but it's still very very pertinent and um very constant in our culture. And then Michel Foucault is a French philosopher, um, heavily influential in the sexual revolution um, and in the post-truth era. Um, So if most people haven't read their works, then how is it that much of our day and lives carry the residue of their philosophies? Well, again, we have to look at Taylor, and he has this idea about the social imaginary. So the social imaginary... um, it, it, it isn't just like, um, it's not a philosophy, um, but he actually says this, uh, these are the beliefs, practices, normal expressions, and assumptions that those within a society share that shape daily life. It's not a philosophy of life, it's how they imagine life should be. It's also how we make sense of the world and make sense of the way that we should act within the world. So an example of the shared imaginary, if you're like, this sounds esoteric, this is abstract, what the heck is the social imaginary? Memes live off of the social imaginary. They're actually, they can't exist without social imaginary. Memes require us to have this shared framework of the patterns and the beliefs of our culture for us to like sit back and laugh at 6.30 in the morning when we're looking at a fresh new meme. So along with the social, the social imaginary, does that all make sense? How are we doing thus far? This is a lot. We doing good? Come on. Thumbs up? Okay. Oh, thumbs up. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That's, that's really helpful, guys. I appreciate that. All right. We're going to keep going here because we're, we're not even to point one yet. We're still in the introduction. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise <laughs> Jesus. He's so worthy. Ta-da. Philip Reef. Philip Reef was a late um, professor at University of Pennsylvania. He was pretty smart. And he wrote this book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from his book. Culture, this is so important because this ties in with the social imaginary as it pertains to culture. Culture is another name for a design of motives directing the self outward towards those communal purposes in which alone the self can be realized and satisfied. This is so important. So what Reef is saying is that we learn who we are by learning how to conform ourselves to the purposes of the larger community in which we live in. So Reef, he, he kind of um, dissects, you know, From really, like, even before the Middle Ages, really in the beginning of this axial age, he really begins to say, like, here are the moments and the movements from human, different human cultures that people conformed to. So he starts off with, in the, starts off in like ancient Grecian times with the political man. This isn't like somebody that's obsessed with CNN. This is somebody that gets their identity or finds how to conform to culture by. Their life in the common, in the in the uh, in the common spaces. Okay, so this is the political man. Um, he says that the political man then, when it came around to the medieval era, came into the religious man someone that gets their identity from religious practices, being a part of the church or a religious institution. They began to conform to those images. After that, he talks about the economic man. So you have industrial revolution, you do have uh, proletariat, bourgeoisie, Marx, communism, manifesto, all of the things. People are getting their identity from economic structures and how to interact with that. And then finally he says, we moved from the economic man to what he calls now the psychological man. The psychological man is the type of person that characterizes not so much by finding identity in outward directed activities, but rather by looking inward to find their true happiness. So when you begin to find true happiness within yourself, you begin to move in alignment with the core tenets, of postmodernism and of secular humanism. So they are they're, they're, um, they're defined as uh, as followed here. Postmodernism is an intellectual stance or mode of discourse defined by an attitude of skepticism towards the grand narratives. Okay. Stanford University calls it this way. Postmodernism begins with Immanuel Kant's Copernicus Revolution. Immanuel Kant, another philosopher, uh, that is his assumption that we cannot know things in themselves and that objects of knowledge must conform to our faculties of representation. Let me just say that one more time. We cannot know things in themselves and that objects of knowledge must conform to our faculties of representation. This is the same thing with Descartes. Descartes, I think therefore I am. Nothing can be taken at face value. If I can't understand it, this is where the enlightenment rationale came in. If I can't understand it, it must not be true. Secular humanism, as defined by Paul Kurtz, who is the founder of the Council of Secular Humanism, so I think he has a pretty strong idea of what it means, says secular humanism is non-religious espousing to no beliefs in a realm of beings imagined to transcend ordinary experiences. Um, Sorry, folks, just lost where I was in all of my... Wow, what 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 a quote there as i try to find my way back um okay great um i'll say that one more time it's being imagined to transcend ordinary experience it's a non-religious espousing no beliefs most of us are not walking around uh saying yeah i like fully aligned with secular humanism We're like, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. I am a postmodernist Christ follower. Now, I mean, maybe actually some are. But for the majority of those in this room, we're probably not walking around thinking that way. But there is something to, um, Dr. Ted Turnow, he talks about the street philosophies. Street philosophies, they're they're not so much as like well-understood or articulated uh, philosophical viewpoints but rather they're ways that we express our lives. A lot of ways we express the tenets of secular humanism and of postmodernism. We express them even within sometimes the the confines of a Christian life. They'll seep through our our discipleship to Jesus and we'll find them in these weird ways. We'll be like, wow, how did I even get to this place of thought here? Because its root is found deeply set in something like a postmodern philosophy or secular humanist um, viewpoint. So why does this matter? We've been talking for like 30 minutes or something. Why does all of this matter? Well, I'll turn to my boy John Mark Comer and he'll explain it better than I could. When we believe truth, that is, ideas that correspond to reality, we show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. We show up to our bodies, to our sexuality, to our interpersonal relationships, and above all, to God himself, in a way that is congruent with the creator's wisdom and good intention for his creation. As a result, we tend to be happy. But when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, and then tragically open our bodies to those lies and let them into our muscle memories, we allow an ideal cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality, and as a result, we struggle to thrive because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. Secular humanism has caused us to be intoxicated with our illusions. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. Think about, um, this is something that I found from uh, a former Supreme Court Justice, Anthony Kennedy. He says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That that statement right there is a modern-day Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau, that, that is so closely tied to Rousseau. His, 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 that is the psychological man on display. D- just, just take what, what, what uh, Anthony Kennedy said and, and compare it to what Rousseau wrote in his book called Confessions. I am resolved on an undertaking that has no model and will have no imitator. I want to show my fellow man a man in all the truth of nature and this man is to be myself. All I need to do, as I have done up to now, is to look inside myself. This is the culture that we live in. This is the culture that we live in. This is the culture that we cannot escape it. Our discipleship to Jesus has to thrive in a culture like this. This is is what Taylor, Charles Taylor, calls the expressive individualism. Each one of us finds meaning and purpose. We find that meaning and purpose not outside, like we said in a mimesis, but it's poesis. We find that inside ourselves. My screen is halfway right now because I keep hitting a button and it takes away everything. Let's see, where are we? Okay, there we go. Oh, fantastic. St. Augustine, he's going to bring us back on track. All right, so this is what St. Augustine says. For wherever the human soul turns itself, other than to you, it is fixed in sorrow, even if it is fixed upon beautiful things. So, let's take, as we enter into our three Aspects of the flourishing life. With all of this stuff that's like in our head, in our imagination now, we're going to look at these three areas of what it means to have a flourishing life. Because Romans says that the, the, not to get drunk on wine, but to have righteousness, peace, and joy fill you up by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at life going well, joy, life feeling as it should, peace, in life led well, love. So, life going well. This is this is Job. Um, most of us most of us know the story of Job. Job ends up losing his entire family, loses his crops, loses everything that he has. So, when you're the savior of yourself, okay. You're an expressive expressive individualism. You are the the maker of meaning. You have to grapple with a really important question. You have to import, if you're you're talking through um, life going well, then you have to have an answer for evil. You have to come up with an answer to death. Um, and, And my experience has been when you are giving those answers, you're going to be incredibly volatile and sporadic trying to make sense of the pain that this world throws your way. See, the culture equates pain to resistance. So anything that resists you is evil and should be avoided in the pursuit of reaching your true self. We said this a few weeks ago, but Oscar Wilde said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist it and your soul gets sick with longing for the things, it has been forbidden to itself. So we begin to see that, it, that things that are uncomfortable must not be what is desirable for me. We think freedom from will lead to flourishing, will lead to this life going well, when actuality, flourishing is found in freedom for Leslie Numigan says, the the relativism which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what is true for me, is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is a mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. It is the preliminary symptom of death. So I've been watching my kids for the last three days by myself, three boys, two toddlers, and a baby. And I will say that there are some slight challenges, um, especially as it pertains to play time, okay? So this idea of freedom from and freedom for, okay, I was living this out for the last four days by myself as a single dad. So when my kids play in the front yard, okay, there are so many more rules. They can't get too close to the street. If a ball rolls into the street, I'm gonna go get it. Uh, if one starts pushing the other, I start imagining them rolling down because we live at like a little bit of a grade. So I start imagining my two-year-old rolling into the sidewalk, into the street. There's so many more, um, they can't play outside without me in the front yard. There are all of these boundaries, all of these elements. And now like that's not so I can repress their self-actualization. It's not so I can suppress their happiness and their joy. It's literally me saying, I know if you roll down the hill because your brother pushed you and you roll into the street and you get hit by a car, that won't be great. Now, on the flip side, when my kid's play in the backyard, it is do whatever you want. Within, you know, don't jump off the tree, but like there are so little rules in the backyard, but that's because there are parameters around that play space. And so there's this idea that things that are resistant things that bring about resistance to me must not be good because they resist my actualization they resist my ability to reach joy now we all know i hold to god is not the instiller of pain he is not the instiller of evil but i do know that he does say he will work all things out for the good of those that love him and so there has to be a a space in our theology to give God the sovereignty that he is doing to say, God, I don't understand, but I know that there are boundaries within the Christian moral ethic, and then there are circumstantial boundaries that I know will cause me to be formed into your image that is actually loving, that it is actually something that you desire for me, which is ultimately to be what made in the maturity of Christ. Albert Camus in his Absurd Man says, everything is permitted does not mean that nothing is forbidden. So when life is going well, we begin to see, okay, as life, what our definition of life going well means, we have to have an answer for trials. So The culture says those trials, you need to just escape. Anything that brings resistance towards you is evil, so just escape those things and find some other uh, way of less resistance. Scripture would actually say that formation and happiness is actually probably found on the road of most resistance. And so let's look at James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sister, whenever whenever you face trials of many kinds, because we know that the testing of your faith perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown tossed by the wind. So let's let's dissect this scripture a little bit. First, what is joy? Is joy happiness? Is it just emotional bypassing? No, I actually think joy in this scripture, James is writing joy is coming from the knowledge that you are becoming more like Christ, that you are becoming... You are being formed in his image, out of your image and into the image of Jesus. So joy is not found, as the culture says, in you becoming more authentically yourself. Scripture says joy is found in you, thank you, wife, becoming more like Christ. Thank you. Secondly, perseverance that carries is... Something that is um, this 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 Greek word for perseverance or endurance, um, it carries the connotation of submitting ourselves to the process or remaining under the process, so we have to again have space in our theology to not just grant it that you if you don 't have an enemy in your theology you 're not living like Christian life there is an enemy out there, but there is also there Within God's sovereignty, there are elements that we have to just submit and surrender and say, God, I don't understand it on this side of eternity, but I am believing that the perseverance that I am having to walk through in this trial is causing further maturity in Christ-likeness. That is what that perseverance is doing. Third that perseverance is followed by asking for wisdom. So a lot of us take this out of context and we think, well, this means like when I go into a job interview, I need wisdom on what answers to give or, you know, what not to say, what outfit to wear, you know, things like that. But what it actually means is that God would reveal his purpose through his word. John MacArthur says that God intends that trials – will drive believers to greater dependency on him. So after this praying for wisdom, for God to reveal himself through his word, it says that we should not doubt, that we should believe. Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we have to believe that God is a man of his word, that he has written the things in his scriptures, not us, and that he will fulfill those things. As in Hebrews later, it says, he will reward those that earnestly seek him. So we have to believe. So now another fun diagram that I did uh, on my iPad here um, was kind of the, the, the paradox between what the culture says And what we and what scripture in James says. So this is what the culture says. Believe. Believe in yourself. Believe in your ability to overcome the trial that's happening. Okay, once that starts waning, pray. Go and do do some... Go in and go on like a little bit of a silent retreat. Just go in and seek further knowledge. Go in, go and meditate a little bit. Just go in and find, find that answer within yourself. Okay, now that's not working. Okay, perseverance. You know what? You just gotta, you just gotta push through it. You just gotta push through it. This is just like, this is life and like, this is it. But these, these answers aren't really starting to answer trials and pain. When you go through death, you can't, you can't just go and like, go on the beach and and hope to find the answers to the pain that you're feeling in your heart by itself. And then finally it says, well, you know what? None of this stuff is working, so just be happy. Just be happy, because that's just kind of the only option that we have left, you know? It's just like, you know, let's just go. And this actually will seep into the Christian culture as well. You just get into that place where you're like, you know, God is good all the time. And really we fully bypass Jesus saying that he mourns with those who mourn. Now, James, on the other hand, has this to say with the way that we face trials. He starts with the reverse. He says, start with joy. Instead of believing in yourself, start with the joy of knowing that you're becoming more like Jesus. Wow. That joy will be tested. But remember that perseverance is something that is so beneficial and helpful for the Christian faith. After that, ask for, pray to God to reveal himself. As you're walking in perseverance, be like, Lord, reveal yourself. What is the purpose of this? Like, why is this in my life? Why is this happening? You know, not necessarily giving an ultimatum to God to say, hey, you have to answer this or I'm out, but just saying, God, I'm earnestly seeking you because you say that you'll reward those that seek you, God. And then finally being like, you know what, Lord? I just believe that you're good. I do believe that you will that you will um, meet me in my, in my trial. So the spirit of the age would say that joy is found in the path of least resistance. It would say joy is found in you self-actualizing. And James in scripture would say that joy, everlasting joy, is in becoming like Christ and Christ likeness exuding from you. That is the first step of the flourishing life. Thank you, guys. We're almost there. We keep going. We're we're still going. We're still going. Feeling life, feeling as it should. Peace. This is the second pillar to the flourishing life. Matthew Dixon, who is the author of Story Worthy, says every great story is about a five-second moment of transformation. These are the moments like Frodo saying, you know, what must I do when he figures out he can't outrun Sauron. This is Harry holding Cedric Diggory saying that he's back. Uh, These are the moments where the fulcrum of the story shifts. And there's a scripture in um, the biblical account where I think that this fulcrum is shifting from an axis or an axis of power to an axis of love and peace. This is found in John 19.10. And this is a dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? So the ultimate sign of power is the power to kill. And culture has actually been revolving around this axis for quite some time. If you look at um, in Genesis, there's an account of Cain. He kills Abel, and then he goes and he builds the city of Nod. So literally the first civilization, the first city built, is built with bloodstained hands. So world, the world has been revolving around either physical or intellectual dominance over someone else. Um, Jesus responds to Pilate later on in their discussion. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus is letting Pilate know that there's a different truth that his kingdom is bringing. Not the truth based off of power and death, but one that is based off of sacrifice and love that ultimately leads to peace. This is the beauty of the cross. Vaclav Havel, um, former president of Czechoslovakia, when he was, he was talking through his success Uh, against communism, he said, true escape requires living in truth, which means not only refusing all participation in the regime of untruth, but also rejecting all false refuge in the small pleasures of everyday life. So this is what we as disciples of Jesus have the privilege to do. In the regime of hate and power, we bring peace, and love, and sacrifice. Madeleine Leangle, he, she says, the journey homeward, coming home, that's what it's all about, the journey to the coming of the kingdom. Wow. Yeah. See, the desire of dominance and power is something, it's, it's not just something that we see through philosophy, it's actually something that has been scientifically proven within the human experience. So don't have a ton of time to go into this, but Henry Tar- Tarshvel, um, he was a Polish social um, psychologist, uh, he was best known for minimal group paradigm and uh, social identity theory. Um, his whole entire family was killed by the Nazis. And he was just captivated by this idea of like, how could people be so discriminatory against another set of people? And so he started doing all of these. Um, he started to do a, a bunch of experiments and found that regardless of the level of the arbitrariness of this, of. Uh, Experiment: People would have discrimination against another um, group. Uh, There was another uh, another neuroscientist, David Eagleman, who used fMRI, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, to follow the brain waves. Um, One of his experiments, he would put people in front of a TV, and he would have uh, a hand of somebody that was there would be a hand on the TV that would have over it the symbol of the person that was watching their religion. So let's say you're a Christian, you're watching it, there's going to be a hand in front on the screen, and it's going to have like a cross on it, say Christian. And then in the experiment, he would prick the hand with a needle or like touch it with like a a Q-tip. And what he found through fMRI was that the human brain would have spikes when the person, more, more of a cognitive spiking, when the person whose religion was represented on the TV screen's hand was pricked with a needle than if somebody with a different religion was pricked. So if you're Muslim and you're watching someone else who is Muslim, their hand be pricked, your, your, um, your neurological um, uh, resonance begins to spike when you see that. And so um, Jonathan Haidt, Hy- And Greg Lukanoff, they say the bottom line is that the human mind is prepared for tribalism. That's their response to this. They're like, we are prepared for tribalism. Human evolution is not just a story of individuals competing with other individuals within a group. It's also the story of groups competing with groups sometimes violently. We've seen this over, over the last 15 to 20 years. If any of you are familiar with the Evergreen College situation um, up in Washington or um, the Charlottesville um, catastrophe, even what happened at Berkeley a few years ago in 2017, there is still the, the awareness that there is a world that is revolving around power and dominance, especially to those that do not agree with with the culture. So for life to feel as it should, we have to have a system in which we live and interact with others. There's a, there's a story in 2010, Dratam Praj. He was a pastor in Albania, and he was murdered on his way to pick up his two young daughters from school. Um, he was murdered because he was a part of a blood feud um, so in Albania, there, uh, there was a um, kind of like this unspoken law that if someone was killed, if, if um, someone was killed, that the other family had the prerogative, even had the right to go in to kill a male in that other's family. And this would go until families literally had no men in their families at all. And so families would just cease to exist. Uh, this was really... Um, prevalent and happened a lot in northern Albania and so northern Albania was this very like poor socioeconomic country because the men of the town were actually afraid to go outside and work because they were probably a part of a blood feud Um, and so Dratan and his brother they like coming up to he he lived in this, in this fear for years and years and years. And coming up over to like a little bit of like the middle part of his life, he began to just say like, I just, I can't live in this fear anymore. And he began to have this sense that his life was going to be used for something greater than himself. And so he was well liked and known in the community because his church was heavily involved with the communal life. And so when he, right before he died, he and his brother made an oath that, regardless of which one of them passed and was killed, the other one wouldn 't retaliate it wouldn 't continue that the blood feud would end with their death and so um, a few actually a few weeks after they made that oath, Dratan did um, was killed, and his brother didn 't retaliate um, Two weeks after his death, there were um, there was a huge um, riot in the in the capital of um, Albania and people said, they had this sign that would say um, uh, to forgive is manly because there was, this, uh, there was this connotation that forgiveness was weak, that the manly thing was to take power over the other end to kill. Wow. And so actually the blood feuds ended a few months and was put into law in Albanian law that you, could not ha- you couldn't be a part of a blood feud anymore and it ended with Dratton's death. And that's what we're called to. In our micro interactions with the world, we're called to bring that peace that actually changes and shifts the axis of power that the world revolves around. And so that is the second part, I believe, of a flourishing life, is a life that is bringing about that peace into a broken world. And then finally, it's a life led well. And a life led well equates in love. In 165, um, under Marcus Aurelius, there was a pandemic that hit Rome that um, is estimated to have wiped out a quarter to a third of the population of the empire. Um, In the third century, another plague came and struck Rome, and it was called the Cyprian Plague. And it was known because Cyprian, the bishop uh, of Carthage, he he described the characteristic vividly. It's pretty gruesome of the plague. But then he also... um, he, he wrote in great detail about the Christians' response to the plague. Um, so this is what he had to say about the Christians and their actions with those that were sick. Um, what a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all, the powerful, um, with all the powers of an unshaken mind against so many onsets of devastation and death. Dionysius, uh, Bishop of Alexandria, he shared on how the Christians showed mercy to others during the pandemic. He wrote, most of our brethren showed love and loyalty in not sparing themselves while helping one another, tending to the sick with no thought of danger and gladly departing this life with them after becoming infected with their disease. Many who nursed others to health died themselves. One century further, um, there was another plague under Emperor Maximus Day, and, uh, and Eusebius, he writes this about their response. The zeal and piety of the Christians are obvious to all of, the, uh, all of the heathens. In this awful adversity, they alone gave practical proof of their sympathy and humanity. All day long, some of them tended to the dying and to their bur- burials. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all so that their deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent of God. Paul Murray, who was an American civil rights activist, in the midst of segregation, said this about those Um, that were against her i intend to tear down the segregation by positive and reinforcement reinforcing methods when my brothers draw a circle to exclude me i shall draw an even larger circle to include them this is our call christianity didn't just um, rapidly expand because of constantine it rapidly expanded because of the love and the mercy that was shown by the christians to those that were sick and dying Christianity is most potent in the midst of, of a heavy, a heavy uh, heaviness from the culture. So we are in a moment now where we have the opportunity to love and to show a different way of interaction that could cause such potency of discipleship to Jesus unlike any other time in our lifespans. Right here, right now, in the moment where we're feeling these cultural pressures on each side. Wolf and Crossman, they end by saying this, love can be fully expressed and realized in the here and now, even if it often has a, a peculiar shape. That is, the Christians ought to say always and only love. We, not, we, we ought not to say always and only rejoice. The Christians ought always to rejoice, and so Paul commands in Philippians 4.4, 4, but even while rejoicing always, we must, in Paul's vision of the good life, mourn with those who mourn. The Christian ought not to expect always and only to be peace. We can say always and only make peace, but only because that's what love does when peace is lacking. Love will always have primacy in the realization of flourishing life under the unfitting conditions of the present age. So we're going to end with worship. Um, And I just want to like set our response. This has been a lot. I know this is a lot. Thank you guys for just like going on the journey. This is, this is a ton. But this is not just so that we can have information thrown at us. This is actually so we can have a framework of what a flourishing life looks like and a flourishing life that actually all of humanity is looking for. We are conduits of the new kingdom. And the joy that can last through trials that we live out, the peace in which that we view the world revolving around on its axis and the love that we interact, the sacrificial martyrdom kind of love that we enact and, and, and involve with others brings around the new creation. It brings about what Isaiah 11 says, the wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy all on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So maybe you're here today and after all of this, something has stuck. Maybe you're here and you're realizing, oh, I am perhaps aligning with a philosophy of self-actualization, of joy being found in me becoming more authentically me, or in peace being found in resisting those that disagree with me and actually just like reading more books, listening podcasts and being able to intellectually um, show my dominance over them. Or perhaps you're standing and you're saying, you know what? Love, yes, love is, is, is superficial. It's conditional. It's, regar- it's, it's only for those that fully align and affirm me and what I am doing with my life. Maybe you're here and you're seeing that, oh, I've aligned with that philosophy. I would encourage you to come and as we respond to repent to come and to say, Lord, I surrender and I repent to you. I ask for you and the the philosophy, the theology of following Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, of allowing true joy in the knowledge that I'm becoming formed in the image of a savior that didn't fight when he was accused, that allowed death to come to his mortal body so that he could defeat death in eternity. So maybe you're here and that's one thing. Maybe, maybe you are. you recognize that you've tried to put Jesus into your life, that you've tried to fit him into your philosophy so that you can just live with the least resistance when in actuality, all of life should be formed and crafted around the image of Jesus. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.